Hey there, mighty men. I'm your host, Dr. Dave Paschkowski, founder of Men Made For More Coaching. Our business helps husbands level up their life, their leadership, and their legacy in marriage and in business. The purpose of this podcast is to bring together like-minded men that feel destined for big things in their life and provide you the resources and community that you need to lead yourself, your family, and your business. If you've ever felt overwhelmed, frustrated, lost, or alone on your journey to a better and more purposeful life, you're in the right spot. You weren't designed to be average, so it's time to quit living that way. Today, I'm giving you permission to unlock your true potential and step into all that you were made for. All right. Welcome to today's guest episode of the Men Made For More podcast. I'm joined with Dr. Glenn Livingston. I'm really excited about the topic today and really excited to have Dr. Glenn on here. So Glenn, thanks for coming on today. Excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this all week. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna have some uh, some fun with this one. We'll be talking some some stress eating, some overeating, some dieting strategies. What works, what actually works, versus uh, the yo yo dieting that I think people tend to fall into. But uh, Glenn, thanks for coming on. And why don't you give uh, give listeners uh, those that aren't familiar with you just a, a general overview of your your background and uh, what got you into uh, this you know this, this stress eating world, this uh, overeating world that you that you find okay. yourself in. Okay, so I, I mean I've got some fancy credentials and what I now is I write books about binge eating and I run a coaching network and we've we've got more than 11,000 reviews and you know a million readers and stuff so we're we're kind of on top of our game now but um, I wouldn't want people to think that I was just a doctor that got into weight loss because I'm someone who had a very serious eating problem myself when I was maybe 16 17 years old I discovered that because I'm six foot four and relatively muscular I could eat whatever I wanted to if I worked out for two or three hours a day. And I'm, you're nodding like you understand the, the game. I've been yeah. There. It was like, uh, you know, if it's not nailed down, whole pizzas, boxes of muffins, um, you know, five, six lattes. They didn't call it lattes back then. Boxes of chocolate bars. If it wasn't nailed down, I mean, if you got to the Woodbury Country Deli after I was there, you probably found them out of pizza and Pop-Tarts. It's just, that's just how it was. Um, and I didn't think that was a problem. I thought that was a really cool thing. I lived to work out and eat. Um, and the only problem in retrospect at that time was that I could have accomplished a lot more if I wasn't eating so much, working out so much, and going to the bathroom so much, and sleeping so much. Um, maybe I would have oriented my career in a different way. Whatever. It turned out okay. Uh, the real problem was that when I got a little older and my teenage metabolism slowed down, And I was married and I was commuting two hours in each direction to see patients and go to school, go to graduate school. I found that the food had a life of its own. I couldn't stop. And I, you know, I'm I'm the son of two psychotherapists and a family of 17 psychotherapists. And so that's always been really important to me. I've always considered myself a psychologist first and foremost. And, um, if you know anything about psychology, it's not so much of an intellectual endeavor, like I originally thought people would would come to me and show me the jigsaw puzzle of their life. And I would say, oh, well, this is really easy. You just rotate this piece over here and you're missing this piece over here. And they would say, okay, doc, I'll get right on that. But that just ain't how it works. It just doesn't work like that. What, what happens is that people have to love and trust you enough to consider putting the jigsaw puzzle piece back together in a different way. And you gotta, you have to lend them your soul in order to get them to think new thoughts. 
And that was really important to me. And I couldn't do it with 100% efficacy because I was busy obsessing about food. I would be sitting with a suicidal patient mm. and you really have to be present. And I was thinking, when can I get the next pizza, right? And Or, or couples right after they had an affair and I'd be thinking, gee, I need a box of chocolate. And I just was not happy with that. Um, in the meantime, my triglycerides started climbing. At one point, they were over 1,000. I have a test at 826, but at one point, they were over 1,000. And yeah. um, my top weight was probably about 280. I stopped weighing at 257. I am 208 this morning. I, I hover between like 195 and 210, depending on how much I'm working out and everything. Um, and so the doctors were yelling at me and telling me I was probably going to die. I, I couldn't be totally present with my patients. I was not totally present, um, you know, for anything, really. I was just thinking about food all the time. And being from the family that I was from and having the, the depth psychology orientation that I did, I thought that I had to love myself then. I figured there must be a hole in my heart. If I can figure out how to fill that hole in my heart, then I can stop trying to fill the hole in my stomach, right? Mm. So from that paradigm, I went on a very soulful journey. I hired some of the best psychologists around because I lived in New York City and the family I lived in, so I knew who they were. Um, I went to see them. I went to see nutritionists. I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a couple of years. I even conducted a 40,000-person study. I, I never commuted and I didn't have kids and my ex-wife traveled a lot for business. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I, I developed a dual career consulting for actually big, big food companies and big pharmaceutical companies, mm. which I feel guilty about. I was on the wrong side of the world. We can talk about that later. Um, and, and I had this very soulful journey, but I would find that although I had these wonderful conversations and I learned so much about myself and I became a different person in many ways, you know, I kind of developed a spirituality and a, well, a little bit more so in, in recent years. And I developed a very introspective way of being, but, and I, I understood all these things about myself, but I just didn't stop binge eating. I just didn't stop. And um, what finally happened when I conducted this 40,000 person study, it led to a conversation with my mom. Uh, what I found in the study, this is a study done over many years when internet clicks were cheap, when I would intercept people when they were searching for some type of stress solution and I'd ask them what they were stressed about and I would ask them what foods they struggled to stop eating once they started. And I found some really interesting correlations. Like people that struggled with chocolate like I did, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or depressed. Hmm. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bread and pasta and bagels, they tended to be stressed at home. And people who struggled with crunchy, salty things like, you know, pretzels and chips, they tended to be stressed at work. And I thought that was fascinating. And I thought, okay, well, this is the key to figuring out how to fill that hole in my heart. So I called my mom, who's also a therapist and raised me. And I said, mom, you know, I'm not in a great marriage and I am a little depressed and brokenhearted. And I have this finding about chocolate, which says that people who struggle with chocolate, we tend to struggle with loneliness and depression and brokenheartedness. But, you know, you're a therapist also, and you raised me. How did this start? Like, when did I first start going to chocolate? And she looks at me with this horrified look on her face. And she says, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, it's okay. Whatever it was, it was, this was 15 years ago today, or roughly, which was 40 years after whenever this happened. I said, mom, look, however you fed me, it's 40 years ago. 
I don't care. I forgive you. I love you. I just want to figure this stuff out. And she said, well, you know, honey, I'm really sorry, but when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified that I was going to be an army widow with um, two small children because she was trying to get pregnant with my sister. At the same time, my father, your, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison. And I idolized this man. I had no idea he was doing those things. And he was. He was guilty. So my whole world fell apart. And honestly, half the time when you came to me for healthy food or for love or for playing, I just didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you because I was sitting and staring at the wall, um, being depressed and anxious. So what I did was I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, Glenn, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd take it out and you'd suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And we had this moment. This is like a movie moment. And, you know, if it were a movie, Dave, we, we would have had a big cry and a big hug. And then I would never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Mm-hmm. If it really was a movie. Well, I mean, we had a metaphor. This is over Skype. So we had a metaphorical hug and a cry. And it was a good conversation to have. It it made me hate myself less. I was more self-forgiving about what I went through. But do you know that it made eating chocolate worse? In fact, it made my binging worse overall. Mm. The way that that happened was I discovered there was this little voice in my head um, that would say something like this. You know what, Glenn? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in her heart and until you can get out of this marriage and find the love of your life you're going to have to go right out eating chocolate yippee let's go get some right now i combined an understanding of so there's this voice of justification and i combined an understanding of that with a few other things to flip paradigms so i said knowing why i'm overeating doesn't matter it doesn't matter that my mom fed me wrong when i was one year old she fed me wrong when i was older also i had boxes of Pop-Tarts for breakfast and spaghetti for lunch and sugar pops for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I saw a vegetable until I was 16 years old. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was the 1960s, so what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but I realized from several different vantage points that this didn't have to do with why I was overeating. It didn't have to do with the hole in my heart. I had been consulting for big food And I saw that what they were doing was spending millions, if not billions of dollars on targeting the bliss point in our reptilian brain with hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt. And its intention was to stimulate the bliss point without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result is that you kind of hijack the survival drive to say, this is where the good stuff is. And as a result, we're, we're looking for love at the bottom of bags and boxes and containers. And every time we do, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the back, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I said, well, that has nothing to do with my psychology. That has everything to do with my neurology and you know the feast and famine response in the reptilian brain and the survival responses and, you know, they... And then I started studying neurology a little more, and I realized that the reptilian brain, let's think of it as the brainstem over here, and this is the um, mammalian brain, and then the neocortex is over that. The reptilian brain doesn't actually know love in the way that we think about it. 
the reptilian game brain is like always playing a really bad college drinking game. It's like, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? That, that's what it's like in the reptilian brain. There's no love there. Love comes from the mammalian brain that says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what does that mean for the people that you love? What does that mean for your tribe? The neocortex says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about your long-term goals? Not only your mm. diet and weight loss goals, but your strategic plans. What about your spirituality? What about the person that you want to become in society? Let's delay those gratifications until we can figure out what impact that's going to have. And what was happening was that when I would have this experience, if I would be at Starbucks and there was a chocolate bar in the counter that had my name on it, and there was this little voice in my head that said, well, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and that grows on a plant and therefore is the vegetable. And my inner wounded child is probably hurting because my mama didn't feed me well enough. It's like I was embracing this lizard brain and just letting it run rampant. And, and, and it turns out that it activates a different nervous system. There are, you know, people... I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a medical doctor. So I'm probably making some mistakes here and some neurologists would put me to shame. But basically there are two different nervous systems. There's the sympathetic nervous system that gets us revved up for action. That's where the feast and famine response is. That's where the um, fight, flee, or freeze response is. That, that's where the holy crap, we better do something or we're going to die response is. That's where the hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt response comes from. And that, that, pushes through and takes you out of your, your neocortex. It makes you forget who you are. It makes you forget what your long-term goals are. And that's why we can all have the best of intentions and even write it down or read a whole book over the weekend and say, we're starting our diet on Monday. And then by Monday afternoon, um, chocolate's a vegetable and, yeah. and you're just going for it, right? So I started to recognize that this was not a paradigm of self-love. This is more of a paradigm of self-control. And I was going to have to start thinking about myself as the alpha wolf in my own body. It was like, you know, when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, the same way that your bladder might press, like if, if I really had to pee now, Dave, I would tell my bladder, I don't have to pee, but if I did, I, I would tell my bladder, dude, I get it. I'm going to take care of you afterwards, but mm -hmm. um, I'm in control. This business meeting is important. We're going to finish this. I, I assert superiority. I'll take care of an authentic need. I'll evaluate that later. But it's it's not really that different. There is this thing in my body. It's not my bladder. It's my reptilian brain that's pressing for expression. It's, it's pressing for um, you know satisfaction, satisfaction, usually of some authentic need, not for a bag of potato chips, but probably for chlorophyll or you know fruit or some some healthy protein or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's pressing for an authentic need. And it was my job not to be a nurturing, loving, um, you know, father to it. It was my job to assert superiority the way that an alpha wolf deals with the challenger. And an alpha wolf who's being challenged for leadership in the pack does not say, oh, somebody needs a hug, right? Mm -hmm. It growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? I'm the boss here. And I know this sounds crazy, but I was also reading a lot of alternative addiction treatment literature. And there's a guy named Jack Trimpey, who wrote a book called Rational Recovery, and he was working with um, working with drug addicts and alcohol addicts. And he, he pointed this out in exquisitely simple terms. And he had worked out a methodology for um, waking up at the moment of impulse and 
separating from the reptilian brain and kind of putting yourself back in your right brain so that you could give yourself those extra microseconds you needed to make the right decision. Um, there were a lot of things I had to change about what he was doing to evolve a system that worked with food because, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol are a black and white addiction. You, you can mm -hmm. give it up entirely, but food you have to eat. So there are a lot of things we had right. to change. You can talk about it if you want to. Um, and so here's what I did. And this probably sounds crazy, but here's what I did. I, I'm, I'm a very sophisticated psychologist. I've published all these papers in academic journals. I've done tens of millions of dollars of consulting for big companies. And I'd never thought this was going to be public. This was just a private thing. But the way I recovered was I decided that I was going to call my inner reptilian brain my inner pig. This was my pig. This wasn't me. This was my pig. Hmm. And I was going to draw very clear lines in the sand. So I knew the difference between healthy eating and unhealthy eating. Standard advice in our culture is to eat well 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time. What they don't tell you is that if you try to do that without hard and fast rules, that you're forcing yourself into a situation where you have to make constant decisions. Like if I'm at Starbucks, is this part of the 90% or part of the 10%? The problem with having to make constant food decisions is that decisions wear down your willpower. Mm -hmm. And so when you're saying, I'll eat well in moderation, you know, and I'll indulge myself in moderation, it's all well and good, but you're, you're wearing down your willpower every time you're in front of something tempting, as opposed to saying, you know, I will only ever eat chocolate on Saturdays again. Well, it's, I guess that's about 15% of the time, but it's a viable way to go about it. Then all your chocolate decisions are made every other day of the week, and you're only wearing down your willpower on Saturday. So I drew a really clear line in the sand, and I would say, I will never eat chocolate during the week again. Then if I heard a little voice in my head that said, oh, Glenn, you worked hard enough today. You worked out hard enough. You're not going to gain any weight. Go ahead and have a little chocolate. It's not going to kill you. You can start again tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute, that's not my, that's not me, that's my pig. Chocolate during the week is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't mm. let farm animals tell me what to do, right? It sounds nuts. It, I mean, even to me now, you know, uh, 15 years later, it sounds nuts. But the truth is, it eliminated my sense of powerlessness and confusion. All of a sudden, I was waking up rather than just automatically going through this, you know, compulsive ritual that seemed like I couldn't control. Um, I didn't always make the right decision, but I knew that it was me making the decision and there was nothing that was automatic anymore. And once I realized that, once I realized that I had my free will back, I started playing with rules and asking myself, what rules would I follow? It's silly to make rules and break them if I know that I can follow them. So let me make rules that are easy enough that I will follow them because what's more important than losing weight to me right now is taking back my spirit from this pig animal, right? Mm. This, this thing inside me had broken my spirit. It made me feel like I couldn't control myself. So I want to prove that I can control myself. Let me make simple rules that I can and will follow. So maybe I'll only have chocolate on odd numbers days or something. So I, I would make very simple rules that I can and would follow. And I proved to myself that I was in control. Um, slowly but surely, the other thing that happened was that I realized that the things the pig would say to justify the indulgence usually contained a half truth and a bigger lie. So for example, if it says, you worked out hard enough and it's just as easy for you to start tomorrow, you'll be at the same weight. So go ahead and binge today. Go ahead and get some chocolate today and break your rules. 
I realized that it was wrong. Like it, it was true that I could start again tomorrow, but was it really just as easy? And I started digging into the neurology of that. And I found this principle called neuroplasticity, which says that what fires together, wires together. If I have a craving for chocolate today and a thought that justifies that craving and I indulge that, then both the craving and the justification will be stronger tomorrow. So if I say, I, I might as well just start tomorrow, it'll be just as easy. I'm actually more likely to experience the craving tomorrow, but I'm also more likely to say, start again tomorrow, tomorrow. So I'm actually getting, I'm digging myself into a deeper and deeper hole. If you're in a hole, you should stop digging. Just use the present moment to be healthy. So I, I recognized that there was a particular structure to the lies that the pig was telling. And I started keeping a journal. For about eight years, I kept a journal about um, all the crazy things that my pig told me. And it was going to be totally private. And I recovered. I mean, I got, I got thin. My triglycerides went down. I got rid of my psoriasis and rosacea and eczema. Not totally rid of, but I don't have symptoms. And, and, um, and I was just going to keep this private. I was actually running a coach training business and I was teaching marketing and I was you know, pretty happy with my professional career. But then it was clear that I was going to have to go through a divorce. And I was a minor partner in a publishing company. And the CEO said to me, Glenn, you know, what would you think about writing a book now? Because you know, we need to prove that we know what we're doing so we can attract better authors. And I said, well, I have this crazy journal that I kept and I've got this pig inside me. See, he says, I love it. He says, I love it. Do it. So, so I, I took the summer and I turned it into a book. It's kind of an allegory. It's like me versus the pig and people versus the pig. Mm -hmm. And it's written, it's written very passionately and very aggressively because I was going through a divorce at the time. I was kind of angry about some stuff. Um, but it turned out to serve the cause well because it aggressively separated people from their inner pig and it gave them impulse control that they didn't have. I sent it to my business partner, the CEO of the publishing company, and he said, um, Glenn, he calls me back two weeks later, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let environmentalists tell me what to do. He proceeds to lose 100 pounds over the next year and a wow. half or so. So we published it in October of 2015, and um, we started doing some of these podcasts, and before we knew it, it just took off, and um, now we've got over 11,000 reviews, and wow. My life is going around telling people I've got a pig inside me and you might also. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to call it a pig. You can call it something else. Call it yeah. whatever you want. No, that's a, uh, that's fascinating. I, I, there's, there's a lot to, to unpack in that too. And I, so, so it sounds like the uh, you know, cause I mentioned with the, the different levels of the, of the brain. And I think with what you're describing to the, the 90, 10 principle or 80, whatever people want to call it of that sounds a lot like, like I, I hear a lot of intuitive eating is another, another thing that gets thrown around a lot of like, well, I just want to, I want to eat when I'm hungry and eat the foods I want that I'm, that I'm craving. And it's, it, it sounds great in, in, uh, you know, in theory, but I, I have a hard time seeing people actually, actually follow yeah. that because the intuitive gets justified then as, as, you know, other things. And when I try and eat intuitively, I'm like, oh yeah, I did work out pretty hard. So I need much more carbs. And, I, and like, I, I'm almost justifying why it's intuitive that I'm, that I'm eating that way versus truly doing that. Would you say, is this a, is this something that people can get to? Is that style of intuitive eating? Or do you think the, the level of rules or rigidness is, is kind of needed for, for most people? Is that maybe not an attainable thing that people are, are chasing? I've got a lot to tell you about this way of looking at over, overeating recovery versus intuitive eating. Um, there's something to intuitive eating. It, food nourishes you more when you're mindful and present. You'll find that you'll eat less of it. Um, 
However, however, I find that at least most people that come to me are unable to do that for the first six months to a year, at least. And a lot of people are unable to do it indefinitely. Um, I think there's a good reason for that. If this were 75,000 years ago in the savannah, and all that was available was, you know, fruit and vegetables and wild game, then there aren't, you know, there aren't many studies about fat cavemen, right? Um, fag have too much mammoth. It, it, just, <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't happen. The, the, the problem is, is all these rock scientists that are engineering chemicals to, um, to steal our survival drug, to, to break our hungry and full, full meter. So we're out there saying, well, everybody should just eat what you intuitively want. But intuitively, people don't really want fruit and vegetables anymore because they're so overstimulated by these, um, by these high-intensity foods. So there's a principle called down-regulation in the nervous system. When, when, I, when I slept under a subway in graduate school, the first couple of weeks, I couldn't sleep at all. But about a month later, I couldn't even hear the subway because my nervous system got overstimulated and then it decided that the those that stimulus was not really relevant, so it downgraded the response. Your pleasure system, your taste buds do that also. If you eat a chocolate bar every day, by the end of a month, the natural flavor and sweetness of an apple is going to be gone for you. It's going to be lost on you. That's what everybody says. It's hopeless for me to lose weight because I can't possibly eat fruit and vegetables. The good news is if you stop sleeping under the subway, that your sensitivity upregulates and it comes back. When you're talking about taste upregulation and, and taste pleasure upregulation, somewhere between six to eight weeks and it becomes restored. So that's part of the problem is that our natural sensitivity to the things we should intuitively want is gone or, or mostly gone. The other part of the problem is the way of life that we have in our society. Um, you know, we are glued to our screens. We have constant input for decision-making. Every time you read an email, you're making a decision and wearing down your willpower. Um, we have children that have to go to soccer practice and husbands that, you know, want some attention and dinner to be made. And, and we have an overwhelming level of distraction that doesn't really exist in nature. And because of that overwhelming level of distraction, the instruction to be mindful all the time when you eat is almost impossible. So what I tell people who want to intuitively eat, um, because there, there are some people that do well with it. There are some people that do well with it. I say the best thing to do is figure out the foods that you have most trouble with. And let's, for four to six months, let's make some very objective boundaries with them. So you know, I will never have more than four slices of bread per week, per calendar week, right? And that way, you have this very clear line when your inner food demon, your inner pig starts saying, you know, gee, you should have that fifth piece. Now you can wake up and you can figure out why it says you'd ha you should have that fifth piece. And maybe within four to six months, when you get a lot of the, you know, sugar and flour and junk out of your system, then your natural senses will have upregulated and you'll to start to enjoy regular food more, maybe then you can restore a level of intuitive eating and you, you back off of the rules that you created slowly. And I, I do help people with that. And sometimes we have guidelines as opposed to rules. Um, I, I've been doing this for almost 15 years now, and, uh, 14 years, and I still have rules. I prefer, I would like to intuitively eat and just have what I want to, but 
it doesn't work for me. I, I need, I need rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cause that, the rules seem to provide some, some structure. That's what I found personally, at least is it, it takes some of the, the thinking out of it when I'm, when I'm, I, I guess, eating in a way that, that feels my body that I feel good with and not overeating. It's, it's usually around some kind of boundaries where it's not, uh, people from the outside might see a super straight, but it's just either constraining the eating window or when I'm having like yeah. limiting carbs during a certain part of the day, those things too sounds, sounds similar to what I, I, everybody has rules, whether, whether they articulate them or not, there are things that you want to eat. Like you want to eat dirt and rocks, right? Um, you, you, you want to eat, some people want to have broccoli. Um, everybody has rules for what they will and want to. I'm just arguing for articulating them and being very clear about the bullseye that you're aiming for so that you know, when you hit it, when you miss it, and in what direction and by how much, so you know how to make the adjustment. Mm, yeah, so so more more objective behind, like like you said, set number of of bread slices or not having chocolate on on certain days is is the way right. to get more more specific right. about that. Yeah, and then what 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 do you recommend when someone doesn't get that? Because I'm sure that's uh, you know at least at least when my boundaries are broken or from knowing knowing how other people work too, it's like. When you're like, oh shoot, well, I've had that fifth piece. Now I might as well have fifty more more pieces. <laughs> like, how do, how do you not beat yourself up over that? Like, what what's the what 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 are your strategies or recommendations around that? Of if you do slip up, how do you get back on track quickly and not say screw it? Like I I messed up this weekend, so I'm gonna do well, it all, do it all weekend. If it's a good question, if you accidentally touch the hot stove, would you say, oh my god, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down on the stove. <laughs> No, no. On the other hand, you would want to feel the pain temporarily so that you knew where the hot stove was and you wouldn't do it again. You can make adjustments. That, that's the essence of how it works. You, um, you want to commit with perfection. It's like a, an Olympic archer aiming at a very specific bullseye target. You want to know exactly where the bullseye target is. And you want to commit with perfection so you can purge your mind of doubt and insecurity. You don't want to be thinking, maybe I'll hit it, maybe I won't. You want to actually see the arrow going into the target when you're aiming. However, if you miss the target, you don't want to shoot all the rest of the arrows up in the air or into the audience, right? Mm-hmm. You, you want to you say, okay, I missed the target. Why did I not account for the air resistance? Is the target too hard to aim at in the first place? Do I need to move it a little closer? Um, and one of the pig's favorite strategies is to start people off with a very, very distant, difficult target that they can't hit so that they'll say, screw it and just, you know, shoot all the rest of the arrows off the target. Um, but you, you want to forgive yourself with dignity if you miss so that you can, you can do that analysis in a judgment-free zone. Now, it turns out this, this is the piercing insight that really helps people. It's not what you would think it would be. The piercing insight that helps people is that that voice of self-castigation, the self-critical, negative, beat-yourself-up voice that you hear after you've made a mistake is actually binge motivated in and of itself. It's just your pig saying, you are too weak and too pathetic to resist. So you might as well just keep binging. Why don't you give up and be a happy fat person, right? Mm. And if you refuse to yell at yourself, if you teach yourself instead to say, okay, how do I minimize the damage? How do I use the present moment to be healthy? A 5,000 calorie binge is better than a 15,000 calorie binge. It's better to have five cupcakes rather than 15 cupcakes. What can you do to stop and get back on track? Uh, a trick for that is often having a, having something healthy like a bunch of leafy greens and water if there's no medical reason that you can't do that. There, there are some medical reasons that people can do that, usually no. 
um, but to show your body where the survival nutrients really are. So that that's helpful. And the second thing is to, um, I don't know if I said this already, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, is to start to observe any evidence of success whatsoever. So did you catch this after an hour as opposed to after a day? Hmm. Did you eat something that was substantially less harmful? Maybe you had extra rice and beans, but you didn't have a you know, bunch of donuts, right? What, what successes can you observe that you can learn from in this binge? Collect evidence of success rather than collecting evidence of failure. If you collect evidence of success, you will eventually develop a success identity and you will believe that you can do this. If you instead choose to collect evidence of failure, let your pig convince you to do that, you will develop a failure identity and believe that you can't do this. A very important difference in the questions that you ask yourself and what you say to yourself after a binge is when people are collecting evidence of failure, they're usually saying, why do I do this to myself? Oh my God, I know this is horrible. Why, oh, why do I do this to myself? What, why can't I stop overeating? Why can't I stop overeating? When you ask yourself why you can't stop overeating, you're directing your brain to find evidence that you can't stop overeating. You're, you're looking for evidence of failure. When you say, how can I stop overeating? How can I use the present moment to be healthy? How can I learn from this experience? You're directing your brain to collect the evidence that's going to build your personality into a successful anti-binge personality. Mm. I like that a lot. Yeah. The self-talk is so powerful too. And and not confirming that identity. And I'm sure it's easy to like bring the guilt into it, bring the shame into it. Those things that are only going to exaggerate it. How do you recommend for someone uh, in terms of picking those targets to to start at? Are there any guidelines you have of, of uh, if people are continuing to shoot too far or, you know, maybe, maybe they can yeah. push farther. Yeah. Can you speak on that at all? Very much. What you need to understand is that most overeaters are also really good dieters. And we have this memory, which becomes like a wet dream of um, losing weight fairly quickly on a, on a really strict diet. Uh, for me, it was when I had nothing but fruit and leafy grains. And I, I must have lost like 20 pounds in a month. And, um, and so I always had in the back of my head, well, I could always do that. Uh, for other people, it's doing strict, you know, zero carb or low carb keto or something for other people. It's not good. Okay. So there, there's this kind of wet dream that there's this diet out there that's going to take the weight off quickly. Therefore, where I am doesn't matter. Therefore, I don't have to live with this situation too much longer. And there's an old nursery rhyme that says, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. That's how people are living their life in the overeating world. When they're good, they're very, very good. And they're putting their body in almost in a state of famine. The problem with that is that if your body, if your brain perceives that you live in an environment where nutrition and calories are scarce, then the moment that they're suddenly available, when you hit maintenance, or you get to the point that you can't do it anymore, your body's going to say, oh, we better hoard all these calories and nutrition because they might not be available again. So you're living on this feast and famine roller coaster. You want to step off the feast and famine roller coaster and flood your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit. That's what you want to do. Uh, how do you do that? Well, 
there are a million different ways to go about that. I, I'm not an expert on diet and nutrition, but I can tell you that any dietitian or nutritionist can give you a plan that will flood your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit. Um, you ask your, and, and you, you do it slowly. The first, the first step is to prove that you can win. So I remember this truck driver and he had to eat out on the road every meal of the day, every day of the week. And he said, I'm not going to give up eating at fast food restaurants. So then he's asked, well, what, what could you do? He says, you know, I won't go back for seconds. That's all he did. The guy that was the beginning of him losing 150 pounds. That's all he did because he could win. And he saw, he just saw a little bit of success that there's this despair that goes with overeating. There's this feeling like you can't control yourself, that it's hopeless. Um, and, and what's really happened is the pig has seized your spirit. The pig has broken your spirit and you feel like a slave to the pig rather than its master. And that permeates the rest of your life. That, that makes you feel like you can't accomplish things in the rest of your life. And it's very, very depressing. But you can turn that around with one simple rule. So the question is, what one simple thing could you and would you do that would make a big difference in terms of pointing you in the right direction, not necessarily in terms of weight loss in the first couple of weeks, but you'd be getting better as opposed to getting worse? What one simple thing could you do? Other examples are, I'll always put my fork down between bites, or I'll never eat in front of a screen again. Or, you know, some people know, you know, I just need to stop eating after eight o'clock at night. What one simple thing, prove to yourself that you can do one simple thing. Once you draw that line, then then sit and wait for your inner pig or your inner food monster to try to get you to break it. It will try to escape. It will try to get you to break it. Carry around a pad and paper with you. The moment you think you hear your pig saying that you should break the rules, take a breath. Breathe in for a count of seven. Breathe out for a count of 11. Do that two or three times. The reason you want to do that is that it helps you to switch nervous systems. Remember, it's the sympathetic or emergency response system that gets us revved up and ready to, you know, get the chocolate at all costs and forget all of our goals. So we want to get out of that nervous system and into our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the system that says it's time to rest and digest and make strategic plans and, you know, connect to the people we love and that kind of thing. So you want to get out of that nervous system. If you breathe in for seven and out for a count of 11, you're engaging in a breathing pattern that you couldn't engage in if you were running away from a tiger, if there was a real emergency. So you're signaling your nervous system that this is not an emergency. The next thing you want to do is say, okay, pig, I see you. I know that you're talking now. Why should I break my rules? Get it to talk. Well, you can just start again tomorrow. It's easy. You worked out hard. Or just one bite's not going to hurt. Or you failed a million times before. You're going to fail with this diet again anyway. You might as well just give up. Write them down. Don't do it. Don't do this in your head. Write it down. Writing is an upper brain activity. Binging is a lower brain activity. So you write it down. Also, write it down in full. When you get this full squeal out on paper, you're more likely to see what's wrong with it. And then ask yourself, after you take another breath, why is the pig wrong? Well, just won't bite one hurt. Actually, one bite really will hurt. First of all, because it will break my spirit. It'll prove to me that I can't hold my rules. Secondly, because it's never just one bite. You know, what one bite leads to one bite more. And well, you're already off the plan, so you might as well. So, so write down why the pig is wrong. 
keep repeating this procedure until you feel calm. Once you feel calm, it's very clear to you that the pig is wrong. Ask yourself, how might keeping the pig in the cage make me a happier and better person? What, um, this has to do with your big why and why you're doing this all in the first place. And it's a little more that I can get into, into here. But every set of rules can be projected out into the future. If you have one simple rule that says, I'll never go back for seconds. Imagine that you could follow that for a year. I know the pig says you can't, but imagine you could. What would your life be like in a year? What would be better and different? Go into great detail about that. Not just the weight loss, but your energy, your presence of mind, your relationships, your ability to be a role model for your kid, your ability to shop and look good in clothes that you want to look good in, your ability to stop hiding and start socializing and you know take on more product. How would your life change in one year? Write it all out. Then at the moment of impulse, when you are analyzing how the pig is trying to justify this binge, uh, remind yourself of that big why. Remind yourself why you're doing this in the first place. How would caging the pig make me a better and happier person? The last thing you want to do is ask yourself, is there any authentic biological or psychological need here? Um, there are some rules you can't make. Like if your one simple rule was, I will never pee again, your, your body would tell you otherwise really quickly. Similarly, if you made a rule that says, well, I will never have more than 300 calories per day, your body's going to override that pretty quickly. There's some rules you can't make. So be sure that you are actually able to attend to your biological needs, your authentic biological needs. I found, I, I eventually got to the point that I just stopped having chocolate altogether. I haven't had it in years and it, I don't have cravings. It looks like a big bag of chemicals to me. Not interested. Uh, I found that the best way to do that was when I had the cravings and I went through that refutation then I would go have a kale banana smoothie, sometimes juice, sometimes not. And there was something about the combination of the chlorophyll and the fiber and some of the, you know, guar and the pectin and the sugar from the banana that didn't make me high the way that chocolate made me high because chocolate has theobramine and caffeine and all sorts of other drugs in it. So it didn't make me high the way the chocolate made me high because that's an unnatural substance. Um, but it made me content. And it was not uncomfortable any longer. And the most interesting thing happened. When I did that for several months, I started to crave the smoothies instead. Mm. So I, I had retrained and redirected my survival drive back where it belonged. So um, depending upon your dietary philosophy, you might believe that you should be having you know, chicken and vegetables or something. But whatever it is, don't, don't stop at just killing the justification doing that cognitive work, add the piece of making sure you're flooding your body with nutrition and teaching your survival drive that, no, I don't want you chasing the bags and boxes and containers that the fat cats have you chasing. I want you chasing these natural substances instead. When you look at it like that, every craving becomes an opportunity. You can't, you can't recover without having cravings and they're uncomfortable at first, but every craving becomes an opportunity for self-love because you can kill the craving by training it to direct itself in a healthier direction. So one simple rule, listen for the pig to tell you to, to break it, go through that procedure. And um, mm -hmm. that's the basics of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, uh, that's really great. I love the, I love the summary of that. And I, I love, it, it sounds like there's so many options too, for people for their rules can look 
so different person to person in terms of how small they can start. Sounds like people can start really small, get those, get those wins is the important thing though, showing yourself you can. And also it might not be, I, I think people probably immediately assume abstinence from something of, I'm not going to have this on these days, but it could be like you said, of replacing it with something healthier of when I crave this, I'm going to make this kale yeah, and banana smoothie. Or when you, you can make rules that add things to it. It doesn't just have to be restricted. You can say, I, I always start my day with um, 16 ounces of pure spring water, mm. or I never turn on my computer until I've had my vegetable juice. You can, you can do things that add healthy routines to your life also. Yeah. I, I like the, because the addition part too, for people could be a good way to make sure that they're getting the nutrients and addressing some of the, I'm sure the physiology part of it too, of which in turn would help the, help the cravings. I would and assume. Th- th- there is this whole strategy in overcoming overeating of crowding out the bad stuff. So when people are too overwhelmed by the idea of giving up, we talk about crowding it out, but start your day with a big green smoothie. You know, you won't, you won't be as hungry early in the day for, you know, bagels and bread and sausages and things like that. Start, start your day with a big green smoothie and watch what happens. Don't make any rules that says you can't have the bagels and sausages later on, but, but start your day with a big green smoothie. So. Yeah. And, and building those wins over time. I love, uh, I, I love that philosophy. It's, it's definitely a different one. I've, cause I've, I've, uh, I've kept some of those cards in my back pocket too. If it's like, well, I can, the things you're talking about, like, oh, I can overeat because I have this ace up my sleeve to be able to do this, this low carb approach that can get me back on track quickly or, or just wrong ways to go about it too, of, of focusing too much on, well, if I, if I cared about my goals enough, then my willpower alone will do it versus having these, these boundaries and, and small wins in. So I, I think there's a, a lot of, a lot of good information in there. And, uh, I'm excited for, for people listening to be able to try some of that. And you mentioned too, uh, you, uh, there's a, there's a book that goes along with this too, that people can reference if, uh, Oh, if oh you... yeah. Oh, and it's, it's free for Kindle Nook or PDF. You can get it at neverbingeagain.com. Click on the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses. You'll not only get a free copy of the book um, in Kindle Nook or PDF format, we, we do have Audible and paperback that is charged for that. Um, you'll get a set of recorded coaching sessions, full-length recorded coaching sessions. I know this sounds weird. You're probably thinking, why the hell does Dave have a psychologist on who's got a pig inside of him? It's, <laughs> it just sounds really weird and cruel in the abstract, but it's it's actually very compassionate and life-giving when you, when you listen to it. Um, so I have a whole bunch of recorded sessions and we have a whole bunch of food plan starter templates. So we've thought through sets of rules you could choose from for different dietary philosophies. So I always like to say our philosophy is diet agnostic. As long as you're flooding your body with nutrition, then you can use whatever philosophy you want to. So there's, there's a sample for keto. There's a sample for uh, macrobiotic. There's a sample for point counting, calorie counting. It, it doesn't matter what dietary plan you're on you can make this work and we put together some samples for you. I call them start, call them starter templates because I want, I want you to take responsibility for them. I'm not, I don't have the authority or credentials to tell you what to eat. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll link that up in the, in the show notes too, for people to check out and be able to download. And as you were talking to, I, I had one more, one more question that before we wrap up here, that, uh, that came to my mind too, because a lot of people, you know, especially, especially, you know, our, our population being primarily, you know, entrepreneurs and guys, and we have a, you know, we have a desire to, to look good is, is a big, a big driver, but what's one of the most unexpected when you, cause, cause you've mentioned, you've touched on some of the things already of, you know, the productivity and the confidence and the happiness and the freedom of not having that hanging over you. What's one of the, the unexpected benefits that's come from, and I want to say you conquer Nick, I'm sure it's, it's still something that's, that's there, but getting this under control, what's one of the unexpected benefits aside from looking good and feeling good and those things that you've noticed? It's 
it's a presence of mind and the shifting of your libido to more of a life purpose, as long as you don't pick up another addiction. Um, here's what happens. People get their food under control, and then they go through this period where they feel bored because all of a sudden they're not overstimulating their system all the time. And we live in a society where there are scene changes on TV, you know, every eight seconds or so. There are half-naked women in car chases and planes blowing up. And, um, you know, we're constantly dealing with input from emails and social media and everything like that. And when you eliminate a good deal of that overstimulation and all the chemicals that are going through your body, suddenly you feel a little bored. You think like, is this all there is to life? And if you stick with it, your pleasure-seeking apparatus shifts towards what's more genuinely important to you. That could be something as simple as just being a good, you know, dog parent. It could be something as grand as a, you know, life project or a book or a, a movie you want to write or something like that. And the first thing that I noticed in that sense was that everybody was smiling at me. And I thought, what's going on? And then I realized they were always smiling at me, but I wasn't there. Mm. And, and so there's this presence and this relatedness to others that occurs that really is, you know, the most beautiful thing in life. I think we're, we're social creatures. And I think that we've isolated ourselves with all the, um, with all the stop. And that's probably the most unexpected, followed by, you know, a very clear drive towards what you perceive as your life purpose. And it, it takes a while before that happens, but it does come. Mm, that's so good, Glenn. Yeah, I love that. And uh, I appreciate you coming on today. This was a, uh, I got, I got a lot from this and I, and I know listeners will as well. We'll link up the, uh, the never binge again, the, the book, the link for the book there in the, in the show notes, where else can people reach out to you or connect with it's you? Neverbingeagain.com. Okay. Neverbingeagain.com. And where, where else can people reach out to you and, and connect with you? Well, that's the best place. There's a contact button there. Okay. Uh, it goes through my support first, but um, I'll get that eventually. Awesome, Glenn. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate your your knowledge and the and the storytelling is captivating, and I uh, just appreciate your experience because it's thanks, something man. that I know thanks. a lot of people can uh, can benefit from. So, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, cool beans. Thanks for listening in today, guys. I'm believing that even if you apply one thing from today's show, you're taking one step closer to living as the man you were made to be. Meaningful change doesn't happen overnight, so keep showing up and keep consistent every single day until good things start to happen. If you haven't already, taking 60 seconds to write a review on whatever platform you're listening on goes a long way in growing this podcast and reaching other men just like you that are hungry for more in their life. If you have any questions on today's show, feedback, or content you want to see more of, shoot me a text. Yep, text me. 760-477-4361. That's 760-477-4361. Let me know that you're listening in so I can personally thank you for your support of myself and the show. That's it for today, guys. It's time to raise your standard for yourself. Stop settling for just getting by. Go all in on your passions and the life you were made for. I love you guys and talk to you soon.